Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. everybody. Nice to see you all. You know, it's a lot of changes here in the sanctuary. Um, this week, we added 120 chairs to sanctuary, and that's uh, that's been cool. So those new service times aren't starting next Sunday. They're starting in January. So make sure next Sunday, you know, that uh, we'll still be at the same service times, 8, 9, 30, and 11. When Jason said you get to sleep in an extra 15 minutes, I think he meant that you have to wake up uh, 15 minutes earlier. But... Or you could just go to the 11 o'clock service and sleep in all you want, right? Also, do you guys notice the new lights? We got new lights in here. They look great, right? So place is coming together. All right. Well, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Today we're beginning a new series for the season of Advent, which is the weeks leading up to Christmas. And during the season of Advent, we focus our hearts and our minds, our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world 2,000 years ago in an event called the Incarnation. What that means is that God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He became one of us in order to reveal himself to us, in order to relate to us, and in order to redeem us. The message of Christmas is that God became a child. He was born as one of us as a child so that we, through Jesus, could become children of God. And so this Advent, our series is called One of Us. And over the next few weeks, including Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we're going to be talking about different aspects of what Jesus did by becoming one of us in the person of Jesus. So please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you for this great miracle, this great mystery of the Incarnation. Lord, that you loved us so much that you became one of us. Lord, as we study your Word today, help us to understand that truth, but also not just understand it conceptually. Help us also, Lord, to put these truths into practice, to respond appropriately, and to understand what this means, not just in general, but what it means for us in our lives. So Lord, give us insight into your word and transform us by your spirit as we study it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a really strange experience this week. I was in Bethlehem, like the actual Bethlehem, right? Like the place where Jesus was born. And I was there with a group from our church. You know, we do these trips, these kind of tours of Israel periodically. So every couple of years, we're going to be doing another one in the near future. But I really encourage anybody, by the way, if you haven't gone on these, I think that's something that if you can do it, I would encourage everybody to do it because it really strengthens your faith. You definitely read the Bible differently after going on a trip like this. But anyway, so we were there with a group from Whitefields uh, there in Israel doing this tour. And we spent two days in Bethlehem. So there I was in Bethlehem this week, which is really cool, right? Like being in Bethlehem around Christmas time. So we started the day by going to the fields where the shepherds were watching their flocks by night when they received that angelic announcement that Jesus had been born. And then after that, we went to the exact place that's believed to be the place where Jesus was born. It's a cave which was used as a shelter for animals, and now it's housed inside of a church. They built a church over the top of it to memorialize it and to protect it, so we went to that place. 
And then we went to lunch, right? And so it, one of the interesting things about Bethlehem is that it has one of the highest populations of Christians in all of Israel. So we went to lunch at this restaurant in Bethlehem that was owned by a Christian family. And at this restaurant, they were playing Christmas music, which, by the way, is like one of the, my favorite things that I love about Christmas because so many of the Christmas songs, like the ones we sang this morning in worship, they're about Jesus, right? Like, oh, holy night, joy to the world. These are like the soundtrack to Christmas, and they're all about Jesus. And I love the fact, like, how you can go into stores at Christmas time and hear these songs that are praising Jesus. It's so cool. And I mean, just think about how epic that would be to, like, be in Bethlehem listening to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, except that's not the kind of Christmas music they were playing in this restaurant. Instead, they were playing all of, like, the worst Christmas songs that exist. You know, the ones that are not about Jesus, but are about all kinds of other ridiculous things. Like, like for example, I was sitting in this restaurant in Bethlehem at Christmas time, and, and they had, like, this music going really loud, and they played the song, uh, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> Which is just, it's a terrible song, right? It's about a child being scarred as he's like witnessing what he thinks is his mother cheating on his father on Christmas of all days and with Santa of all people. Like how, how ridiculous is that song? Like it's terrible. And then at the restaurant, right, they, they also played like Jingle Bells and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like really the worst of the worst Christmas songs ever written. Uh, and, and then they played the actual worst Christmas song ever written. And you know what that is, Last Christmas by Wham, right? And so just imagine being in Bethlehem and like having this experience and listen to like George Michael, you know, too loud for anybody, not to mention no one should ever listen to that song. And then like, then like listening to like Mariah Carey's like, all I want for Christmas is you in Bethlehem. Like it, it was weird, okay? And if it wasn't weird enough, then the music like stopped, they like turned off the music and somebody in this big red Santa costume came in to wish us all a Merry Christmas, except it wasn't like, like an old man with a white beard. It was the owner's daughter who's like, she's like 25 years old and also very pregnant, right? Which is like, cool, like congratulations, I'm happy for you. But it was just all the more weirder, right? And so, um, yeah, so all that to say, it was interesting being in Bethlehem at Christmas and having this experience, right? Which was a mix of the true and authentic meaning of Christmas and what Christmas is really about and at the same time, also having all of these cultural trappings of the Christmas season, which have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It reminds me of like years ago, my wife and I, when we first became parents, we put a lot of thought into like, what should we do with like telling our kids about Santa? Like, should we tell them? Should we not? What should we do? And so here's what we decided to do. We decided we're going to tell our kids about the real person. Saint Nicholas of Mira, who was uh, the person who became known as, you know, Saint Nick. Uh, he was a pastor, a theologian. Uh, he was from southern Turkey, not from the North Pole. He attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and he helped put into writing the Christian belief, the doctrine from the scriptures, that Jesus is God. And he was known for his compassion and generosity, specifically how he helped poor people with gifts for their children in times of need. 
And so we explained to our kids, yeah, there was this man, Nicholas of Mira. He was a great man who loved Jesus. And at Christmas, like people celebrate his memory by dressing up like him and giving gifts. And that's why you see like Santa at the mall and things like this. And so that, that worked great um, until one day we were at the mall waiting in line to, you know, get our picture with Santa. My son was like five years old at this time. And he starts talking to another kid in the line and he tells him, hey, did you know that that is not the real Santa? And then the kid's like, okay. He's like, listen. And my son goes, yeah, you know, the real Santa is dead. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and that's just some imposter up there, right? Like, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't wrong. Okay. So that's like true. But of course we had to like apologize. The other kid's parents are like trying to explain, well, you know, it's not like, Someone killed Santa. He just talking about like a historical person. Sorry. You know, like, so at Christmas, uh, with all the festivities and the cultural trappings, it's, like, it's really important that we remember what Christmas is all about. What we celebrate at Christmas time is, of course, the birth of Jesus. But the reason why the birth of Jesus matters is because of something which St. Nicholas himself understood and taught to others, which is that in the birth of Jesus, God himself came to us. In the person of Jesus, God took on human flesh and lived among us. And in his life, Jesus did things for us that we could not do for ourselves in order to save us. See, if Jesus had not been born into the world, then we would be hopeless and we would be lost for all eternity. But because Jesus came into the world, there is hope for you and me. The title of today's message is, Jesus, God Come to Us. And here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what we're going to see is that in Jesus, God became one of us in order to reveal himself to us and to provide a way for us to be in a relationship with him. So let's look at the first part of that. In Jesus, God became one of us in order to reveal himself to us. The book of Hebrews begins with these words. It starts in verse 1 where it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, the book of Hebrews is a letter which was written to Christians, specifically Christians from a Jewish background. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. But understand, it's written to Christians from a Jewish background, but specifically Christians who were feeling tempted to give up on Christianity and go back to Judaism because they were facing persecution as a result of their faith in Jesus. So, so this, these Christians, understand, they were from a Jewish background. They were being persecuted. Some of them were being tempted to give up on Christianity, go back to Judaism. And this letter was written to them to explain to them in detail, to make a compelling case for who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for them and how apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. It is only found through him. And therefore, it would be a terrible mistake for them to give up on Jesus, even if following Jesus means suffering persecution. So the writer of this letter begins by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the letter's written to Jewish people by a Jewish person, but unlike other letters in the New Testament, which begin by the author of the letter introducing themselves, right? Like, so it's say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Romans, right? Or 
Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the exiles who are in dispersion all over the world. This letter doesn't begin that way, even though that was, by the way, the custom of the time, because you hand somebody a letter written on a scroll, they don't want to make them, you know, undo, roll out the entire scroll just to find out who signed it at the bottom, right? No, you put your name right at the top. This is who wrote it, and here who's it, here's who's it's written to. But unlike the other letters in the New Testament, which all begin in that way, which was the custom of that time, this letter doesn't begin by telling us who wrote it. Instead, the letter begins by reminding us that there is a God who speaks. There is a God who speaks. Perhaps, and and this is what I think, the writer intentionally chose to not put their name at the top of the letter because they wanted their readers to consider the content of what they had to say and not ever be distracted by the person who was saying it. So the writer begins not by telling us who he is, but by reminding us that there is a God in heaven and that this God is a God who speaks. You know, it's interesting if you look at statistics about belief in God and atheism and agnosticism and all these things. There are a lot of people in our country who identify as non-religious and or another way that they might identify as, as agnostic, right? Which means that maybe there's a God, but they're not really sure. And yet, what's interesting is that all the, almost all of these people who identify as non-religious or agnostic, they still believe that there is some kind of God out there that exists. You see, the number of true atheists, right, people who genuinely do not believe that there is a God whatsoever, that number is actually, like, surprisingly small, as small as, like, 3% of the population. So the great majority of people, even if they're non-religious, even if they say they're agnostic, they do believe that there is some sort of higher power, some kind of God that exists, right? Statistics show that upwards of 97% of people believe in some kind of God. So for most people, the question is not, does God exist? For most people, the question is, what can we actually know about the God who is there? Right? Like, so a lot of people have opinions about God. And this is what they might say. Well, lots of people have opinions about God. The question is, how can we really know? How can we be sure? How can we get a definitive answer? And to answer that question, here's what we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. We can know who God is because he is a God who speaks and he has spoken throughout history. In other words, God has not left us in the dark just to wonder about who he is and what he requires of us and how we can know him. No, he has spoken throughout history in many ways and at different times. The Bible tells us the story of God's revelation of himself to humankind. It tells us that God revealed himself first through creation itself, through the world that he made and created. The world, the universe, it bears witness to his power on the one hand, but also to his loving care and his compassion on the other hand. But beyond that, the Bible also tells us about how God has spoken to people throughout history, sometimes directly, sometimes through messengers like angels, sometimes in other ways. God spoke to Moses, for example, in a burning bush. To the people of Israel, God appeared in a cloud of fire. To Job, God appeared in a whirlwind. To Elijah, God spoke in a still, small voice. Sometimes God speaks to people through heavenly visions. But throughout history, God has spoken in many ways to reveal who he is 
and to tell us who we are and why he created us, as well as what he requires of us and how we can know him. But look at what it says in verse 2. So after saying that God has spoken in many ways throughout history, it says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son being spoken about in this verse is Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, we read about a time when Jesus was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the far north of Israel. It says that Jesus, he was with his disciples there and he asked them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is an interesting question. I think it's a question that sometimes people don't really understand what he was asking. See that phrase, Son of Man, this is a title which comes from the Old Testament. From the book of Daniel, chapter 7, there in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, God had told the people about a person who would one day come in the future, and this person was called the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, we're told there in that passage, would be a human person who would be given dominion to rule over all people, all nations, in a kingdom that would last forever. Now, this concept, right, this idea of a coming king who would rule over an eternal kingdom, this was not a new concept that Daniel introduced for the first time. Now, this, in fact, this was really the major theme and the hope of everything that God had always spoken to the people through the prophets throughout history. If you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we're told about how God created the world and that it was good and how he placed the first people, the man and the woman, in this garden that he created, especially for them. And yet those people did the one thing which God told them not to do. And as a result of their actions, their sin and their rebellion, they opened the door to, to, to death and decay. A curse entered into the world. And yet in the midst of that tragedy, God spoke God revealed that he was going to do something to fix this problem that they had created. His solution, he says there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, his solution, he says, is that he's going to send a person, a person, but this person he's going to send would be different than any other person who would ever be born. What would be unique about this person is that he would be born as the seed of a woman. Now, usually, here's why it's interesting. Usually that term seed of someone, whenever else it's used in the Bible, it's always the seed of a man. I don't want to go into an explanation of why that is biologically, but the point is that seed of man refers to the offspring of a man. But notice here, there's a difference. This person will be unique, be different, because he will be the seed of a woman. In other words, this will be a person who is going to be born in a way that no one else was ever born. He's going to be born as the offspring of a woman, but not of a man. This person God is going to send to fix the problem of sin, separation, and death. And when he comes, he will crush the head of the serpent, who we're told elsewhere in the Bible is Satan. And then from that point on in the Bible, we're not told like the history of the world just in general, right? That's not what the Bible exists to do. No, the story the Bible tells is focused particularly on one specific family line. And so as that 
that family tree grows and branches out. Uh, we ignore a lot of the branches as they go off in different directions, and we stay laser-focused on this one particular family line, a family line that goes through a man named Abraham, who's told by God that he's been chosen by God to be the one through whom this person will come into the world who will be a blessing to people of all nations. And then we follow that history of that family line through Isaac, through Jacob, and then through Jacob's son, Judah, who is told that from him will come this person and that this person will be a ruler, one who will have dominion. Then we follow the line further on until we get to a man named David who becomes king of Israel. And God tells us that through him, in fact, through his son Solomon specifically, the promised Savior will come and he will rule over an everlasting kingdom. In the midst of all of this, right, as this is going on, God gives laws and ceremonies to the people of Israel in order to show them and help them feel and experience and viscerally understand the fact that they cannot save themselves, that they are imperfect and unclean people who need a Savior, that they need to be made clean spiritually, but it's not something that they can do in their own strength or by their own fortitude. Later on through the prophets, God revealed that this promised Savior King would be more than just a normal person. He would actually be divine. Through the prophet Isaiah, we're told that this person who would be born would be born as a child into the world, and yet his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Think about that. A child who will be born, who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and his kingdom will be a, a kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness in which death will be abolished and people will live with God forever. Through the prophet Micah, then we're told that this person will be born in Bethlehem and other details are given by other prophets about things that this person will say and do when he finally arrives. And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is not asking them, who do people say that I am? What he's asking them is, who do people think the Messiah will be? And so they answer him. They say, well, some think it's John the Baptist. Other people think it's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who will kind of like come back to life and that will be the Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, who do you guys think that I am? And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So when Peter said that Jesus was the Christ, understand the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Greek, the Greek word is Christ. And the Old Testament title was Son of Man. In other words, the, these three terms, Son of Man, Christ, Messiah, they all mean the same thing. They all refer to this promised Savior whom God had spoken about in history that he was going to send. But notice that Peter didn't only say that Jesus was the Christ. He also said that Jesus was the Son of the living God. And that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Remember what it said there? It said that God spoke through the, to the prophets, through the peop, to the people, through the prophets, in many ways, in many times. But it says, and yet, now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. 
Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? Does that mean that he's like God junior, right? Like little God, or does it mean that he was created by God or that he descends from God in some way? No, see, when the Bible tells us that Jesus is the son of God, it's telling us that Jesus is God, and yet there is a distinction between Jesus and the Father. That's important. You see, this is why when Jesus was here on earth, he referred to himself as the Son, and he referred to God as his Father, and yet he also said, I and the Father are one. Because what the Bible teaches about God is that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. You see, when Jesus was here on earth, his disciples asked him, at one point they said to him, Jesus, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. In other words, show us, reveal to us what the Father is like. We've seen what you're like, Jesus. What we really want to know is, what is the Father like? That's what we're curious about. And look how Jesus responds. He says, seriously? Right? Like, have I, have I been with you so long and you still don't know? In other words, he's like, what do you think I've been doing this whole time, right? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. You see, in Jesus, God became one of us in order to reveal himself to us. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God feels or what God would do in certain situations, then look to Jesus. You know, how many of you can remember like being a kid, or maybe you still do this, right? Where you would like go outside and you like turn over like a big rock or maybe you like roll over a stump or something, right? And what do you see? Well, on the underside of that rock or stump, there'd be a whole bunch of like creatures crawling around underneath. Well, just imagine if you, you know, you're looking at these creatures, night crawlers and pill bugs and all those, and you're like, man, my heart just goes out to these guys. I just kind of like want to, when I look at them, they're just going to die in ignorance. Like, I can't let that happen. I, I need to speak to them. Like, I need to like help them. And so you want to communicate with these little creatures, the night crawlers, the millipedes, right? The roly polies. And so you start shouting at them. You say, hey, guys, I've got some stuff to share with you. Guys, first of all, stay away from salt. It's bad news. I know it smells good, but it'll kill you. Stay away from it, guys. I'm telling you this because I love you. I just want to help you out. But no matter how hard you shout at them, they don't really seem to respond, right? Like they, they don't seem to be getting the message. So you shout a little louder and it doesn't work. So what do you do? Well, you start like, like trying to like do sign language and like communicate with them like by moving your body and your hands. But they still don't listen to what you're saying. They don't understand your love for them and your concern for them and what you're trying to tell them to do. And so what would you have to do? Well, if you could, what if you could become one of them, right? then you'd be able to speak to them in a way that they could understand. And in a way, and I know it's a very imperfect analogy, but listen, that's what God has done for us. He himself came to us in the person of Jesus Christ in order to reveal himself to us in our language, in a way that we can understand. Notice the contrast here in Hebrews chapter 1 between verses 1 and verses 2. In verse 1, it says that in the past, God spoke in many ways, 
But now it says God has spoken to us in one ultimate way, through his son, through Jesus. If you look down at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus, the son, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. It isn't that Jesus was a messenger from God who brought us a message about God, but rather Jesus is God come to us. He is God's revelation of himself to us. And you know what that means? It means that God wants to communicate with you. God wants to communicate with you. He wants you to know him, and he wants to have a relationship with you. But there is also a finality to this that you must see. If you want to know God, there aren't many ways. There's one way, right? There's one way, and that is through Jesus. We're told in verse 2 here that Jesus is the heir of all things. That speaks of Jesus' status, that he's preeminent. He's of the highest position. There's no one on par with him. There's none above him, no one equal to him. And ultimately, everything belongs to him because it says at the end of verse 2 that through him, through Jesus, the world was created. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, right? This is the opening verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet over and over in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus created the earth. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. What that means is that Jesus is God. He's not less than God. He's not inferior to God. He is God. And all things were created by him, and all things were created for him. And that includes you, right? You were created by him, and you were created for him. And this is why you will never find the joy and fulfillment that you seek in life until you come to that realization that living for yourself will never be able to give you the joy and fulfillment you desire. It's only in living for Jesus and for his purposes that you will experience that because that's what you were created for. Verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every molecule, every star, every galaxy, the orbit of the planets, he sustains it all. He holds it all together by the word of his power, and yet not a single hair falls from your head without him knowing about it. He knows even the minute details of your life, and he cares. There's nothing so big that it's beyond his ability. He upholds the universe. And yet there's nothing so small that it's beyond his care and his concern, that he doesn't have time for it. You see, you can bring all the matters of your life to him, both big and small, because he's incredibly powerful and he's incredibly caring. And the way that his almighty power and his loving concern come together Think about this. His almighty power and his loving concern, the way they come together is what all of this is building up to at the end of verse 3, which brings us also to the final part of our sentence for today, which is this. In Jesus, God became one of us to reveal himself to us and to provide a way for us to be in a relationship with him. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins... 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, as God, Jesus could have used his infinite power to do anything. He could have used his almighty power to vanquish his enemies or to provide himself with security and comfort. But instead, God chose to use his almighty power to become one of us so that he could make a way for us to be in a relationship with him by making purification for sins. The way Jesus made purification for our sins was by becoming one of us, living a perfect life, a life without sin, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf, which we ourselves have failed to live up to. And then taking that perfect record of his righteousness and choosing to become for us our substitute in death, right? The perfect sacrifice for our sins, giving his life in exchange for yours in order to ransom you and redeem you. But what that means is that at Christmas time, as we remember the baby lying in a manger, we understand that it was God himself come to us to reveal himself to us and to provide a way for us to have a relationship with him by giving his life for us on the cross. He was the only one who had the power to do that. And in his love, he did it for you. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The message of the gospel is that your sins are so serious that God himself had to die for you and yet God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. So this Christmas season, remember, the baby in the manger, it means that God loves you, that he came to you so that you could have a relationship with him. One of the messages of Christmas is that God can be known. He's not an unknowable mystery. He has revealed himself in word and in action, and his desire is to be in a relationship with you. And I'll tell you this, having a relationship with God is something which will change and transform your life as you learn to trust in him, as you surrender to him, as you cast your cares upon him, understanding that you have a purpose in life because you were created by him and you were created for him, and that because of what he's done for you, you can have hope that goes beyond this life. The way to enter into that relationship is by faith, trusting in what Jesus did for you and dedicating your life to following him. Listen, the truest way to celebrate Christmas is by entering into that relationship which God came to earth to make possible for you. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.